You're listening to the Outdoors Channel. Who? What? Yeah! Woo! I think it's a splendid idea. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoors Channel Book Club. In this programme, host Andy Howell chats with the well-known and well-respected Chris Townsend about his book, Crossing Arizona, and how a trip like that can really change the way we see the world. But first, something a little bit different music-wise. I like to start the show with something that's in tune, in keeping with the subject matter. In this case, the artist is Luna Drive, and it's a blend of Native American music mixed with some UK and US dance influences. Aptly called Here at Black Mesa, Arizona. And of course, all the music is available on the Podsafe Music Network. Here, I'm saying it to you from here at Black Mesa, Arizona. We believe in beauty ourselves, but here we're suffering. Again. 
Welcome to the Book Club. I'm Andy Howell. Chris Townsend is well known to many of us as the gear editor of TGO magazine. But Chris is also one of the UK's most accomplished long-distance trekkers and backpackers. And for this podcast, I've been talking to Chris about his book, Crossing Arizona, an account of an 800-mile, two-month trek through the forests and deserts of the Arizona Trail, which threw in a crossing of the Grand Canyon just for good measure. It's a fascinating interview in which Chris not only talks about the trail itself, but about what it's like to take a long-distance walk and how that changes the relationship between the trekker and the landscape they're moving through. Sit back and enjoy Chris Townsend. Chris, uh, I know that you feel that um, Crossing Arizona is your best book to date, but it, it's uh, not particularly well known over this over here, is it? It isn't, no. Uh, I think partly because Arizona isn't very well known over here. Uh, but also, you know, I'm most known for the gear reviews and perhaps the Backpackers Handbook and a couple of guidebooks. But in fact, this sort of book, the story of a walk and a place, is my favourite. My favourite of my books, but it's also the type of books I like most. If I want to be inspired about somewhere, I'd rather read an account of a trip there than a guidebook. Well, I, I certainly think it is inspirational. Now, um, it is available through Amazon, and bookshops can order it, can't they? Oh, certainly, yes, yeah. Okay, so let's uh, well, let's see if we can make it a little bit more well known by the end of this podcast. That will be good. It's um, as you said, it's not a guidebook; it's a travelogue. It's it's the experience of your journey and um, the description of the experiences and of, that you had and the thoughts you had as you moved through the the country. But it's um. It's an 800-mile round trip, I think, through through desert, um, quite a hostile environment. How on earth did you get the inspiration to do this particular walk? Well, the inspiration for this walk in particular came from another trip in the same area. I did a two-week walk in the Grand Canyon. And while I was on the north rim of the canyon, I was looking south over, in fact, a sea of trees rather than desert, and in the distance, I could see this mountain range, alpine-looking mountains. And I just wondered, can I walk there from here? Or rather, how would I walk there from here? And when I got back from that trip, I researched that a bit and looked at some maps. And then I discovered that there was a plan for a trail, the length of Arizona, all the way from Mexico to Utah. And that this trail did link those mountains, which are the San Francisco peaks, the highest in Arizona, with the Grand Canyon. But once I discovered the existence of this prototype trail, I thought, right, well, actually, I'd like to do the whole trail and not just the bit between the, the San Francisco peaks and the Grand Canyon. Now, um, I think we, we think of Arizona as just desert, but in fact, it, it seems a much more varied um, landscape than that. And, uh, and so what kind of terrain were you walking through? Well, there is a great deal of desert in Arizona because Arizona is very dry. And the thing is, most of the towns and the big cities are in the desert areas. So that's what people are familiar with. But in fact, there is a whole range of mountains, little mountain ranges, in fact, right through southern and central Arizona. And these go up to eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet and once you get above 6,000 feet, you start to get the first bushes, 
by the time you get to 9,000 feet, you're in a dense conifer forest. So the mountaintops are forested. And further north, you get the Colorado Plateau, which is all seven, 8,000 feet high. And this is covered with a vast conifer forest. And the Grand Canyon cuts a great slash right through this forest that is deep enough to be desert at the bottom. But at the top of the Grand Canyon, it's forest. So really, the walk was a mixture of desert walking and mountain and forest walking, but completely different to at home and in many other areas. The forests are on top of the mountains rather than at their base. And it is true wilderness walking, isn't it? I mean, you're walking for days or weeks on end without really meeting another human being on the trail. There are certainly some very remote areas, yes. I mean, there's some popular areas where you'll probably meet people regularly. There's others where very few people go. And at the time I did it, the trail, well, the trail still isn't complete now, but the trail wasn't even half complete. So there were certainly some remote sections um, where it was map and compass work, and to some extent, you know, keep heading north and make up the route as you go along without even a trail to follow. So um, one of the things that um, is fascinating, really, for most of us, um, mere mortals as trekkers, um, you know, the, the most we, we can scrounge off from our work is perhaps a two- or three-week trek. But, but I mean, even doing three weeks, I've noticed that it feels very different as you go into the second week. You begin to connect in the, to the landscape in a different way. If you're walking for, what, this was two months, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, pr pr presumably, you end up with a very, very different feel and relationship with the land around you. Oh, very much, yes. I think there's a number of things that happens. One of the things is it becomes what you do. It's no longer a break from what you do. It's no longer a holiday. When you're going to know you're going to be out week after week after week, that is what you do. Another thing is that you get very used to the um, pragmatic side, the basis of backpacking. You stop thinking about finding campsites, finding water, packing the sack, all these sort of things, because you're just doing them every day. So they fade into the background and leave you free you know, to relate to the real reason you're there, which is to experience the landscape, the wildlife, the atmosphere, the places that you're walking through. And for me, it takes over a week to get into that frame of mind so that it's only on the longer walks that I really experience that and enjoy it. I often feel the problem with your standard two-week trip is that at the end of the two weeks, you're fit, You've got over all the little niggles, got used to your equipment, and now you're going to stop. I think there's a lot of people who are just um, thinking about their next TGO challenge that recognise that. You know, you get to Montrose, don't you think, OK, what's next? Exactly. Now, one of the things that strikes me from reading the book is, is particularly when you're thinking about the desert um, and, and these forests, um, I, actually what comes across is a very rich um, flora and fauna um, I wonder if you could just talk us a bit about actually the, the land as you're walking through it. it. It's not just desert or it's not just trees, is it? Oh, not at all, no. And the desert is not the popular image of you know, the Sahara, of endless sand dunes. Um, it's a stony desert and it's quite rich in plant life. 
in some places you get whole forests of cacti in many different species, some of them quite weird and wonderful. There are also many other plants, very unusual to us, but certainly plenty of them, mostly very spiny. You learn not to brush against anything, whether it's a cactus or not. And then you go up through the stages of life as you climb up from the desert floor where it's cacti, then you start getting slightly more scrub, and then the bushes get a bit bigger, and then the last cacti are left behind. Though in places you can have the unusual thing of seeing prickly pear cacti growing underneath a huge pine tree where you're getting the different zones starting to merge together. And then when you get to the top, you're in a big pine forest. And of course the wildlife, the bird life, changes according to where you are on the mountain, whether you're in the desert, whether you're in the forest at the top. And you're, you're, I mean, you're out in that for days on end, presumably um, not, not using a tent, you were using a tarp, I think? Yes. Um, the days on end, I think, is the significant thing, because particularly when you're not used to this environment, I mean, I'd done the one walk in the Grand Canyon. I'd never seen any of the terrain on the Colorado Plateau apart from that, and certainly none of southern and central Arizona. So it takes, it takes quite a few days simply to get used to and come to terms with where you are and for it to feel familiar enough that you can start noticing the details. You can start noticing plants that you're seeing every day and they register. Wildlife that you're seeing every day begins to register. So in that case, so does the stuff that's more unusual as well. And this is bear country, isn't it? The, the forested areas are, yes, not the desert areas. Um, in fact, one of the forested areas, the Four Peaks Wilderness, is reckoned to have possibly the densest population of black bear in the whole of the USA. However, unlike really popular areas like Yosemite, the bears are not a problem. I mean, I didn't even see a bear on the whole trip, where every time I've been to Yosemite, I've seen bears. So you don't have to take all the precautions that you do in Yosemite. You don't have to carry you know, a plastic barrel to keep your food in. You don't have to hang your food at night. Um, in terms of the camping, I tr treated the food much as I would at home, which is to say that I, I cooked where I slept. I kept the food with me overnight. I think that's good because whenever... Um Whenever I look at the American trails, you know, it's uh, I get very excited, and the bit about bears tends to make you think and um, think twice again. But um, although you didn't encounter bears, you did you did have some uh, some quite inspirational wildlife encounters, I think. Well, there was one in particular, yes, um, and this was on what up to this point had been the worst day of the trip, and the only time that I almost ran out of water, which in these areas would be very serious. When I've been climbing up this very steep mountain ridge towards the forest at the top, knowing I got a long way to go to the next water, but not expecting any difficulties en route. However, a huge forest fire quite a few years previously had destroyed all the lower forest and been followed by flash floods because there was no vegetation to hold the water. 
which had carved out all these huge ravines on the hillside that I had to climb into and climb out of, which were all loose gravel, really hard work. So this slowed me down. And then when I got above this, into the upper alpine forest, all these spiny bushes had grown up. And I had to fight my way through these, so I was getting scratched and torn, I was thirsty, I was running out of water. I say it was the only time on the walk when I was thinking, why am I doing this? And also, it's probably a good job that I was on my own, because I'd probably been cursing anybody I was with. And I came out onto this forested ridge, and as I did so, this magnificent bald eagle floated across the sky in front of me and settled on this pine branch and seeing it just took me out of myself completely I forgot about all the moaning and complaints and was just awestruck by this magnificent bird there is nothing quite like those close encounters with wildlife that you get in the wilderness mountain regions is there but um I, I was struck by the book and also by talking to you about this the other day that the you know the the kind of quest for water really drives the route planning doesn't it i mean you've you've really got to go from water source to water source and... oh very much yes um the most succinct advice i got from an experienced desert hiker before the walk and probably the best advice i got from anybody was simply think water and you do you have to think water all the time because water sources can be 20, 25, 30 miles apart. Most of them are seasonal, which means after it rains, rather than you can predict the time of year. So you can never guarantee with most of them that there will be water there. So you always need to carry enough water to get you to the source after that, or get you out if there's no water. And this applies in the mountain areas as well as the desert areas because in the high mountain areas most of the water is snow that falls in the winter and then melts away there are very few streams let alone lakes I mean, most of the water sources I used were tiny springs or cattle ponds and um, are these well marked on maps or is it a bit of a hit and miss thing finding them well again some of them are well marked on the maps. Um, one of them, which I'd already been told by other people that nobody could ever find it, and I went and looked for it, and I couldn't find it either. So in this case, I think the map is definitely wrong. I mean, some of them, yes, some of them you're on a trail, and there'll actually be a sign pointing you off the trail down to a spring. But not all of them are on the maps. And again, as I say, you may reach some of them and find there's no water there at all. In this respect, I was very lucky in that Arizona had just had one of the driest winters on record, virtually no snow and no rain for about four months. And the advice I was getting from people in Arizona was you cannot hike the trail as it is at the moment without going and putting out water caches in advance because everything has dried up. But as I arrived in Arizona, there was a huge storm, torrential rain as the plane landed and torrential rain for the whole of the next day. And that was just enough to 
top up most of the sources. So when you were saying that you have to carry a great deal of water with you, often for 24 hours or more, and presumably um, something, uh, a margin for safety as well, I mean, just how much weight, how much volume of water are you carrying? Well, I was often carrying three gallons. Which in, um, in litres is how much? Well, what... Four, four litres, I think, is a gallon. Yeah. It's an awful lot. It is lot. a lot. If you think of that in terms of platypuses or analogenes, it's, uh, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I took, to try and keep the weight down, you know, I took a lot of, of water bladders rather than hard water bottles because at least that cut the, the weight of the containers. Um, I mean, anybody that's carried a, a significant amount of water knows how heavy that is. So you must have had a reasonably... Um, solid pack, one that carried quite a bit of weight, I guess. I, yes, I debated about that. I mean, I wanted to go as lightweight as possible, as always. But I also had to be realistic that I was going to be carrying, you know, three gallons, possibly more of water at times, and sometimes a week's food as well. So that even if all my gear was very, very light, those would make a heavy load. So I decided the one lightweight item I didn't take was a lightweight pack. I took a full spec, big 80 litre pack, but one which I knew would be comfortable with, you know, 25 kilos, 50 pounds, whatever in it. Now, you um, you utilised an interesting method of moving kit about in front of you, which was a kind of variation on the post-restaurant theme, um, something you called a, a bounce box, I think? Oh, yes, yeah, that worked very well. Um, and I think on long trails in the States, it's now a fairly common method. One of the things with a long walk is there's always bits of gear that you'll need for part of the walk. Then you might not need it for a few weeks, but you will need it to get. What do you do with it when you don't need it? If you carry it, you're just carrying extra weight. There's also the fact that if you've reduced your gear to a minimum, when you get into a town, your clothes may need to go to the laundromat, but what are you going to wear while they do? So what I did was I bought a large cardboard box and I got to Arizona. And that cardboard box went the whole length of the route from post office to post office. And it contained a set of town clothes that I could wear while my trail clothes were being cleaned. It contained maps and any other info I needed for upcoming sections of the trail. It contained all sorts of odds and ends, you know, a bottle of shampoo, a towel, all the things that I didn't want to carry but would need occasionally, and also any bits of equipment that I didn't need but thought I might need later, I could just stick in the box. Um, and a week later at the next post office, they'd be available if I needed them. And this was pretty reliable service, nothing, nothing got lost. No, nothing, nothing got lost. Um, I mean, on other long walks in the US, I haven't had a bounce box, but I've had food supplies mailed to me along the way, and I've, I've never had any problems. I've always found you know, the US Post Office pretty efficient. Now, one of the things that was interesting for me in the book is that um, on, in that kind of wilderness over that kind of scale, navigation is um, something of a less precise art than perhaps it would be on the... A lot of our trails, but uh, um, there was one 
one amusing bit, I think, of some some pretty big obvious object that you missed when you were walking through the forests. Oh yes, the the only city that I walked through, and initially I couldn't find it. I mean, as you say, particularly in the flatter forested areas, route finding was more a question of going in the right direction and finding the easiest way. I didn't have to be precise with the navigation. It was like keep heading north. And eventually, you know, I'll come out in roughly the right area. I'll reach a road or a river or whatever, and then I can follow that to where I want to be. And I thought the same would apply to finding Flagstaff, which is the biggest town in northern Arizona, but it's right in the center of a big forest. So it's surrounded by dense conifers on all sides. I knew I was heading for it. And there was definitely a freeway, which, of course, you can't go onto on foot. It's like a motorway. And I could see the tops of vehicles on this freeway, and then it disappeared again. And I knew I ought to be there. And I was going through the forest, and I was looking for what I knew Flagstaff had, an urban trail network, which I wanted to use to go through the city. It actually took me ages to find it. The odd house would appear, and a bit of a street, and then I'd lose them again. Um, So that was, yes, that was amusing. And oddly enough, it was the only really difficult navigation of the whole trip. It gives you an idea of the scale of the place when um, you're struggling to find a city, doesn't it? Now, the walk took you through the Grand Canyons, and this was presumably uh, over to the edge of the canyon, down into the bottom and up again. How how long did that take to traverse? Well, in fact, on this trip, that took two days, because I did it just like that. On the first day, I went down into the canyon, crossed the Colorado River, camped on the other side, and then the next day, I went up the other side. I'd like to have spent much longer in the Grand Canyon, but the Grand Canyon runs east-west, and my walk was going south-north. Even so, the Grand Canyon section was the high point of the walk. The overnight camp there was the most spectacular, most enjoyable camp of the whole trip. So. It was still a wonderful place to be, even if I was only there for two days. It is the most traumatic landscape, isn't it? And the scale of it is something that is difficult to appreciate just by looking at photographs and uh, TV footage. Oh, definitely. The first time I went there um, to do this two-week walk, I'd already looked at pictures of it, of course. Everyone's seen pictures of it and TV programmes, as you say, and so on. But even so, when I first walked to the rim in the um, canyon, Grand Canyon village, amongst everybody else, and looked over the edge, I just stood there and stared at it, and my brain would not take it in. I couldn't relate to the scale. Everything, I was looking at something, and I don't understand this, this is confusing. I had to look at it for quite a bit before it started to make some sort of sense, but even then, I wasn't sure that I knew what I was seeing. And really, it was only when I went down into the canyon, right the way down you know, to the river at the bottom, and up the other side, that I had some comprehension. Because it is so vast. And as canyons go, you know, it's massive. It's so deep, there are mountains inside the canyon that are rising up 5,000 feet. And they're not as high as the rims either side. They're wholly contained in the canyon. There's masses of side canyons. I mean, it's a very complex place. 
once you drop over that rim and go into the canyon, you are really in another world. Because the top of the canyon, both sides, is flat forest. And then the canyon is the complete opposite. This huge cleft, very, very steep sides everywhere. Um, it is, it's been described as an inverted mountain range. And I can see you know, why someone said that. Is there is there a lot of walking or hiking generally in the in the canyon? I mean, is uh, there, there are very few places to cross through at the bottom. I think. Well, there's only really there are two bridges across the Colorado River, and and they're very close to each other. Yeah, there's, there are standard two standard routes: one on each, one on the north side, one on the south side. And these trails are quite popular, and these are maintained trails. They have water stations, they have rangers. But this is a tiny bit of the whole canyon. For the more remoter areas, very few people go, partly because they are difficult. You're talking of a lot of scrambling. Water can be very, very difficult to find. I mean, the two-week walk I did in the canyon I didn't meet anybody most of the time until I came out on what are called the corridor routes, these popular routes, when there's suddenly masses of people everywhere. And then you cross them, and the people disappear again. And, um, I mean, how often were you resupplying, Chris? How many, day, how many days' food were you carrying? On average, it was about five. Yeah. Um, it varied. There's an awful lot of little settlements along the way. Um, although, as you said, you know, Arizona has a lot of real wilderness, you're not talking about the sort of wilderness you get in somewhere like Alaska. It's not that, that, that vast. So mostly, every five days to a week, I was coming out of the wilderness down to a, you know, a road, a little, a little village or hamlet. Now, um, I'm interested about the process of writing the book, really, because there's... Um there's a lot in the book which are your thoughts and reflections really about the about the area the place and the way um the area has been developed now i mean when you set out to do the trek i mean were you very clear that you were going to write a book and um you know was it did the trek come first or was was the trek the purpose for the book and um how did you go about putting it together i i didn't know that i was going to write a book I mean, on any long trip, the thought is always there that maybe I will, and maybe someone will be interested in publishing it and then reading it. But on all my walks for decades now, I always keep a fairly detailed journal in which I write down everything that occurs to me, whether it seems inspirational or completely boring and mundane, it doesn't matter. I thought, no, just write it down and then it's there for the future. Um, so if you like, the basis of the book was already there. And in the journal, I've always put down any thoughts I've had, as you say, you know, issues that I want to think about that the walkers made me consider, ideas that come up, not just a strictly, you know, A to B account of this is what I did today, this is where I went. And when I said earlier that these are the sort of books that I really like, I also like in them all the different tangents on which authors go, all the different ideas, all the things they discuss. Um, I think a book that simply described 
the routine of each day and where you walked, you know, could get dull fairly quickly. Yes, and um, I mean, those people who know your Munro's and Tops book, which is um, probably much better known, um, I mean, Crossing Arizona is a much more, it's a much richer um, uh, experience reading that, I think, um, you know, in the most po positive light. Uh, so how long does it take to, I mean, when you come back and you sit down to write the book, I mean, how long physically did it take you to, to, to produce the words? That's actually very difficult to answer. I think the actual time spent, you know, actually putting the words down, putting them on the screen with the computer, isn't that long. I mean, a book like this, you're probably talking about, in total, a couple of weeks. But the much more important time is thinking what you want to put down. And sometimes, well, I'm sure other writers have this, it can, it can appear that you're not working because you're sitting there staring at the screen and just looking at it for half an hour and not writing a word. But certainly what I'm doing that time is thinking, what do I want to say next? How do I want to say it? Does it fit here? And sometimes I'll think, hmm, I want to say that, but this isn't the place for it. So I'll make a note of it on a piece of paper to say, don't forget this, but it comes in later. When you add all of that up, you're talking about months of work. And it also happens when I'm writing a book like this, I can be doing something completely different. So I might be out on the hills here and I'll start thinking about a bit of it and thinking, oh, it would be better if I did it like that. So I'll be writing it in my head. And then when I get home, I'll sit down and make some notes and think I want to remember that. Yes, I mean, uh, I wonder often whether people appreciate just how much agony authors go through. I've I've written two books, nothing to do with hiking or backpacking, but uh, it's probably the most the dreadful, most dreadful thing I've ever done in my life. And both times I've said I will never do that again. So you have my total um, total respect for doing that. Now. Um, I, I think I'd get into a lot of trouble if I didn't ask you a little bit more about the gear you were carrying. We know that you were um, carrying an 80-litre 80, 80 pack because you had to carry all that water, and you were using a tarp. But, I mean, what, what, what else was in the Chris Townsend rucksack? Well, as I said, as, as little as possible. Um, desert night, surprisingly, can be very cold. So you do need a good sleeping bag. But I still had a, you know, a light down bag that was rated to minus five and reckoning, well, if it's colder than that, I'll wear clothes in it. Uh, and I did have a down vest with me, again, for cold nights and mornings. Because the other thing is, that far south, you don't get a long dusk. The sun goes down, it's dark. And that early in the year, the walk was done in March and April, you've got roughly 12 hours of darkness, so you're not going to be lying in your sleeping bag asleep the whole time it's dark and the whole time it's cold. So I did want warm clothing, you know, for sitting round in camp, so I didn't have to be done up in the sleeping bag all the time. So I took a down vest. Um, down, of course, works perfectly in places like Arizona because it's so dry. And I had a light fleece jacket for when it was not quite 
that that cold. I took what I thought were ultralight, you know, pack light waterproofs with me. They were complete overkill. Um, I really didn't need anything as heavy as a 400 gram waterproof. But I think this was more my, you know, British and Scottish experience, <laughs> which is that I feel very nervous if I don't have adequate waterproofs with me. And what about footwear? Well, footwear, um, I used a very light pair of um, Bracer boots, the Superlights. This was at the time when they made Superlights without a waterproof breathable membrane lining, uh, which sadly they don't now. Because certainly in the heat of the desert, you would not want any sort of waterproof breathable membrane. And I took boots rather than shoes on, on the advice of people there who said, well, the main thing is you're going through a lot of sharp, thorny scrub and you want to protect your ankles. But weight wasn't needed. And these at the time were the lightest boots available. But I also took um, some Teva sandals. Because on a long walk like this, I always like to have some sort of backup footwear. So this is a problem with footwear. You've got something else. And in fact, in the hottest desert sections, I wore the Teva sandals. And as long as I stepped carefully, I found them okay. The boots were of more use in the mountains, um, particularly high up, where when it was colder, um, when there were bits of snow on the ground. I, uh, this business about putting um, waterproof linings in boots, particularly in mesh boots, I find quite staggering because there's nothing worse than walking through very hot country with um, a Gore-Tex line or something like that in. And you, but yet very few manufacturers seem to produce those kind of lightweight boots that really fit summer conditions, do they? They don't, unfortunately. Um, many people's major concern appears to be keeping their feet dry, come what may, from outside sources rather than from their own sweat. I mean, I find between, well, October through to May, I can wear boots like that in Britain and my feet won't get, you know, too hot and sweaty. Well, I'd rather not have them. But even in British summers, I find them impossibly hot. Yes, I only ever had a pair once with a Gore-Tex line, and I took them to the Pyrenees in August, and um, I shall never buy another pair again, I don't No, I can imagine that, w that would be pretty horrible. Yeah, it was. We're digressing a bit, I think. Um, now, uh, in thinking about this in terms of a, a two-month trek, and particularly the the view that, you know, you know, over that length of time it becomes a very, very different experience. Um, is something like the Arizona Trail or a comparable size trek, is is that something that's within the capability and the planning of uh, most good hill walkers? I mean, if you're somebody who's used to walking for a couple of weeks in the Alps or the Pyrenees or you regularly do the TGO Challenge, is this something that perhaps somebody should aim to do once in their lifetime at least? Certainly, yes. Um, I mean, there are easier trails than the Arizona Trail. I'd say with the Arizona Trail that people who've planned their own challenge route will probably cope okay in terms of the navigation and so on. 
if you're used to the very good trails of the Alps or the Pyrenees, most of Arizona is going to come as a bit of a shock. Because as I say, the Arizona Trail mostly doesn't exist as a trail on the ground. And where it does, it can be very faint. There's virtually no signposts. Um, so you do need to know what you're doing, especially as you've also got the water question, because it's desert. But there are, you know, there are other routes, the Colorado Trail, a classic one that's popular is the John Muir Trail, which is three weeks, that's a bit shorter. Um, but there are many others, and of course you can put together your own in trails that exist. And in Arizona, you've certainly got to want to experience a very different environment to go there from Britain. The Alps, the Pyrenees, the TGO Challenge, none of these prepare you for the type of weather, terrain that you're going to get in Arizona. But to build up for it, I mean, for example, if you went to do um, the John Moore Trail or a section of the PCT, that would give you a feel, would it, for that different kind of terrain? Well, well the southern section of the PCT would, because that is desert or semi-desert. The John Muir Trail, no, the John Muir Trail is very similar, in fact, I'd say, to walking in the Pyrenees. You know, it's a, it's a well-made trail through forests, and over high passes in spectacular mountains, but not particularly alpine, and there aren't huge glaciers and snowfields and so on. I mean, the John Muir Trail, I think, is superb. I definitely recommend it to anybody. And it would certainly give you an experience of what backpacking in the USA is like, but I wouldn't say that it was actually good preparation for the Arizona Trail. But we'd encourage people to look at thinking about... Um planning a longer hike in that sense. It seems to be certainly something that's well worth um, us looking at and, and probably something that's within, well within the capabilities of many of us. Now, um, I, I'm kind of intrigued as to where the next big trek will be, really, because this was, this was 2000, wasn't it? It was 2000, yeah. Is there a next trek, a next book? I hope so. I mean, since then, I have done one slightly shorter trek, which in fact was in the High Sierra and took in bits of the John Muir Trail, which was a 500-mile circular trek from Yosemite Valley and back round to Yosemite Valley. The idea of that was to visit various places that you don't see on the John Muir Trail or on the Pacific Crest Trail, and which I'd never been to. Um, what that inspired me to do was to go back and do an off-trail, higher-level track, perhaps taking in some of the easier summits and going up some of the valleys and across some of the passes where you don't have a trail. And I'm hoping to do that next summer. But I haven't done much planning yet, so it'll probably be, again, around 500 miles long, but I don't know that. And, uh, I mean, how much planning will you need to... to to, to do that trek? I mean, how many months will it take to, to plan? Well, the, the only detailed planning will be to know where I can get food, which in the Sierra I mostly do know. I mean, with this one, I would like to leave it fairly loose, because apart from anything else, if I'm going to go and explore, I may go up a valley and decide that 
halfway up the slopes on the other side that this is getting a bit hairy and it looks too steep ahead and I'm actually going to retreat and go round another way instead. Um, so I want to have that, you know, that element of the surprise, uh, which to some extent the Arizona Trail had in places as well. So if I've got a time scale, and I think, well, if I set off from here with a week's food, this is where I want to be in a week's time, but then not have a very structured route for in between those points. Now, I was talking to Kev Reynolds a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just asking him, you know, were there many places left in the world that he wanted to explore? And, he, and his view was he needed probably four or five different lifetimes to do that. But uh, give us an indication of uh, those places that are still on your hit list as destinations. Well, I certainly agree with Kev there that there isn't a chance that I'll get a fraction done of the things I'd like to do. Um, Western North America you know, has become my favourite area ever since I did the Pacific Crest Trail. So that's very much the area where I'd like to do more. Um, I've only done a short bit of walking in Alaska, so I'd certainly like to get back to Alaska. But then, as I say, I do want to go back, do more in the High Sierra. I'd like to do more in the desert southwest. The Arizona Trail finishes, say, on the Utah border. But this is, you know, this is a political boundary. This is artificial. You just stop. But ahead, I could see, you know, all these Utah desert canyons and rock scenery that look spectacular, but which then I was not able to continue the walk. If I'd been completely free, I'd have said, well, I'm just going to keep on walking. But I would like to go back and do a long walk in, in that area as well. Well, um, I, I hope you do, and uh, I hope we're um, still going to be lucky enough to, to read about these in TGO articles and, uh, in course, more books to come. Thank you. Uh, certainly, I think uh, Crossing Arizona is a fascinating book, and if you're used to reading um, Chris's shorter accounts in the magazine, worth tracking down, and uh, it's a very good read, and... Um, uh, I'd certainly like to endorse uh, that. Um, go out and buy it. Thanks. Well, Chris Townsend is fascinating as ever there. We were talking about Chris's book, Crossing Arizona, a solo hike through the sky islands and deserts of the Arizona Trail. Um, the book is readily available through Amazon and the other internet bookshops. Uh, recommended retail price £13.95, but you can probably pick it up for about £10. Uh, it's well worth tracking down. It's a cracking good read. Um, so that's it for this episode. We'll be back with more of the book show over the next few months. We'll be interviewing authors. We'll be looking at guidebooks and uh, other items from travel literature that we think um, we'd like to share with you. Um, as ever, thanks to uh, Chris again and also to Bob Cartwright and Rose, without whom this series of podcasts wouldn't be possible. I'm Andy Howell. And until next time, take care and happy hiking. My thanks go to book club host Andy Howell for compiling the show and his guest Chris Townsend for taking the time to paint some pictures behind the writing of such an interesting book. I have to say that a trip like that would be my idea of heaven. Until next time, everyone, happy travelling. This podcast is produced and hosted by The Outdoors Channel. Find out how easy it is to subscribe to all our podcasts by visiting theoutdoorschannel.co.uk. Ciao, baby.